are progressing through the second book of Samuel. We're up to chapter 4, and today I'll be, the entire chapter will be my text. Um, I will endeavor to be timely with the sermon today. I want to cover a lot of ground, and I hope, it, I, hope I don't go too far. If I, if I start down that road going too far, I will endeavor to bring it to an abrupt end, and we will conclude it next week. So, All right, 2 Samuel chapter 4. Here once again the very words of God. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab. The sons of Rimen, the Berothite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was part of Benjamin, because the Berothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, son Saul, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Then the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab and Bana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. For when they came to, into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord, the king this day, of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity? When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of, tomb of Abner in Hebron. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, when we read accounts like this, our minds are hard-pressed to understand the truths contained here, the examples contained here for us, how this is instructive for, for us. Yet we know that, as Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for uh, proof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. And that includes these passages. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit would illumine our minds and hearts, understanding what is contained here for our benefit, 
and for your glory. And may we be quick to embrace those things, that your name would be exalted on earth as it is in the heavens. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. The, the sun shining through here right on my text is so beneficial right now. It's, it's a little dark earlier, so my aging eyes are blessed at this very moment. In today's passage, we meet three men that heretofore have remained unknown to us, and those men are Bena, Rechab, and Mephibosheth. The introduction of these three men give rise to some questions. As for Bena and Rechab, this is the only time they are mentioned in the scriptures. And to my knowledge, other men in the scriptures who bear these, there are other men in the scriptures who bear these names, but these two men are the only ones mentioned in this circumstance. The question that arises for me is from their example in scripture, what can we learn? So I'll endeavor to answer that question today. The third man, Mephibosheth, is the son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul, and nephew of Ishbosheth, the king that dies in our passage. We shall learn much more about him, particularly in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, but for the moment, he is introduced to us, and we must ask the question, why? And why the description that's given to him? Then I want us to consider another question, and it has to do with David's response to these men, comparing David's response to the Amalekite in chapter 1 and Joab's actions in chapter 3 to the the response that he gives to Bena and Rechab here in chapter 4. Why did David respond differently to Joab than he did to the Amalekite and these two Berethites? It's my hope to answer these questions in keeping with the scriptures and to encourage us to greater faithfulness in the coming days, understanding this passage a bit better. Okay, for the the moment, the people of Israel are still engulfed in a civil war. However, the potency of Ishbosheth's forces are in question. Abner, Ishbosheth's primary general, has been killed by the hand of Joab and his brother, Joab being David's senior general. Word has gotten back to Ishbosheth and he is distraught. It has been seven years and six months that David has reigned in Judah and Ishbosheth over the rest of Israel. The entirety of Ishbosheth's kingdom is in question. Before Abner's death, he had told Ishbosheth, Abner did, that he would give Israel over to David and had taken a contingent of his leadership with him to meet with David to sue for peace. We see this in 2 Samuel 3.20 in the previous chapter. It is, we're, it is unknown if Bena and Rechab, these two men who we were introduced to in chapter 4, were part of that contingent that met with David, Abner's contingent, But it is likely that Abner would have made his plans known to his military leadership, including these two men who were captains of troops, according to verse 2. Abner approaches David under a flag of truce. And whether these men were with him or had stayed behind, they see what's happening. Now word has gotten back to all Israel that Abner is dead at the hand of Joab, so it is likely that both Ishbosheth and the leaders of his army are in fear of their lives. Remember, this has been a protracted civil war 
We see this both in verse 1 of the previous chapter, as well as the statement that David ruled in Judah for seven years and six months, found in 2 Samuel 2.11. So it's been seven years of civil war. By way of contrast, our civil war in this country lasted four years. So seven years and six months, they've been in a protracted civil war. And as we saw in the previous chapter, David's forces seemed to be prevailing while Ishbosheth's forces were in retreat. Brethren, put yourself in their shoes, the shoes of Bana and his brother, Rechab. You command a portion of Ishbosheth's army. Your military commander has just been summarily executed by David's general, who still lives, David's general, Joab. When Joab's attention is turned away from the immediate circumstances in Judah, where Abner was killed and turned toward Israel, what will become of you as a captain in Ishbosheth's army? Will you suffer the same fate as Abner? It's entirely possible. In fact, I would say it was highly likely. So Bana and Rechab take matters into their own hands. They're not going to wait for Abner to come after them. They hatch a plan to kill Ishbosheth and present David with his head to show their loyalty, presumably, to David. They believe David will receive this as good news, verse 8. And not only did they believe this would be received well by David, they invoke God's providential provision as the cause of their handiwork, verse 8. In fact, they, they make this theological assumption. God has delivered Ishbosheth into our hands, David. Here's his head. He was the, man who, who, the son of the man who tried to kill you. They have profoundly miscalculated. As David, in his righteous indignation, executes these men for taking the life of a, quote, righteous person, end quote. Now, it's kind of hard to get our minds around that. How was Ishbosheth a righteous person? Ishbosheth knew that David had been anointed by God to the throne of Israel, and yet he allowed Abner to place him on that throne in opposition to God's anointed. Is it really a, a, a righteous person that's being elevated here, Ishbosheth? Well, David calls him a righteous person. The Hebrew word for righteous here could, could also mean, and probably does mean in this case, innocent or just. So God had elevated Ishbosheth to that position for his glory and the good of Israel, even though he was at odds with David, but he was put there by the hand of God. And these two men presume upon God's blessing that they had the right to take his life. And David calls him a just person, meaning he should not have been murdered. We shall see that David is acting out of his God-given authority while Bana and Rechab have wrongly assumed to themselves the authority of an executioner in taking Ishbosheth's life. Well, now I want to speak briefly about Mephibosheth. And then we'll come back to, to the example of Rechab and, and Bana in just a few moment, moments. 
Tucked neatly into this account of Ishbosheth's death is the introduction of his nephew, Mephibosheth. I think I've shared with you before, we used to have a teaching elder in our presbytery who would ask the, the candidates that are coming to the candidates for the gospel mission, uh, ministry, can you tell me who Mephibosheth and Ishbosheth were? And of course, their names are so similar that they would fumble and, and you know, guffaw and try to figure out what was going on there, and, and they couldn't bring it to remembrance. Well, uh, let me give you some help here, because I think it's, 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 we can keep these things straight in our minds uh, because of some circumstances of, of these men. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. Jonathan, the faithful one in Saul's house, the man who, who David loved uh, with all his heart. And, and Jonathan showed that same love to David. Jonathan was David's senior probably by about 15 years. It's hard to say exactly, but uh, when you do some mathematics, some arithmetic in the, in the books, uh, book of Samuel, you, you come out with a, the likelihood that he's about 15 years older than David. So David really looked up to Jonathan as a role model for himself. Uh, Jonathan being a, a, a servant in the household of Saul, a faithful servant. Jonathan has a son, Mephibosheth, and when he goes off to war with the Philistines where he would die with his father and his other brothers, save for Ishbosheth, when he dies, that son is five years of age. So that son is much younger than David. David's likely in his mid to late 20s or even early 30s at this point. So uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is a young child. When, when his father dies. And his, the maidservant that's overseeing his care at age five picks him up and is fleeing for her life, along with other Israelites, no doubt, uh, from the Philistines who've just routed the, peop- the, the armies of Saul, killing Saul and Jonathan and, and uh, his brothers. Fleeing, she drops Mephibosheth, and, or he stumbles. We're, it's a little bit ambiguous here what actually happens, and Mephibosheth loses use of his feet. He becomes a cripple. He is now age 12 or 13 when we get to the chapter that we're in today. Seven and a half years, seven years, six months, David reigned in Hebron, the previous chapter tells us. And so from the death of Saul to the time of this account, Mephibosheth is now 12, 13 years of age. Some of our our young people are that age uh, even today. And David reigned in in Hebron, and now that Ishbosheth is dead because of what uh, Bena and Rechab have done, taken to themselves the authority to put him to death, David will move from Hebron to Jerusalem to reign over all of Israel. And the Bible says that he did, his reign lasted for 40 years. So if we subtract seven and a half years while in Hebron, we see that he has a significant number of years yet to go, 32 and a half years as king. I point this out because the only known heir of Saul's throne by virtue of his age is too young to be a threat to David, assuming the throne if he tried to assume the throne over Israel. This young 
12, 13-year-old named Mephibosheth. And just as important as his age is in this consideration is the fact that Mephibosheth suffers from a crippling disability that renders him impotent as a warrior. In other words, he is absolutely no threat at all to David. Who's going to follow Mephibosheth into battle? The poor man is disabled. He's not going to lead armies into battle. No one's going to follow him. And yet he is the the only remaining heir in Saul's house to the throne. If he were to assert uh, a kingly line to take the throne in Israel, he might have an argument. But he doesn't have the strength to accomplish it. He's impotent because of his circumstance, both age and physically. As I transition into the application of this passage, I want to make one last observation regarding the description of these events in the passage. There's a lot of killing going on here, isn't there? And a lot of brutality, seemingly. The killing of men and the beheading of them along with the cutting off of their hands and feet and the displaying of them in prominent places seems to us to be barbaric, doesn't it? Who would think of such a thing? To be sure, the murder of Ishbosheth and his beheading for personal gain is indeed barbaric. That is indeed barbaric. However, we must be careful to place such a charge against David, who is the lawful civil authority in this passage. Our sanitized version of punishment for evildoing in our society is part of the problem with our judicial system. God is just, and his word teaches us that he does not change. His justice in the days of the Old Covenant, unless abrogated or modified in the New Covenant, are still normative for the civil magistrate today. Thus, the unlawful taking of human life since the days of Noah has been a capital crime before God and is still today. Therefore, David's sentence on Bena and Rechab was justified, for he had the necessary two or three witnesses. They testified against one another. They themselves admitted that they had taken his life. Not only that, they had Ishbosheth's head in their hands. What more evidence did David need? David summarily judges these two men in his lawful authority as a civil magistrate. He rendered a judgment as to their guilt, pronounced the sentence for their guilt, and had them executed, all of which was in his authority. Today, society feels guilty for executing capital offenders if they're executed at all. Capital offenders walk the streets because we as a society love sin more than we love God. We coddle the sinner rather than fearing the God who has revealed justice to us so that we might live, quote, quiet and peaceable lives, according to Paul's letter in Romans chapter 13. Paul tells us that he doesn't give, God does not give the sword to the civil magistrate in vain. That means he's to use it, use it for godly purposes. And yet in our society, it's been lost. Why do we see violence increasing in the streets? The Bible says that God will not be mocked. 
When a society mocks God's justice, the natural consequence is that men will live out their evil ways, just as Bana and Rahab did. Violence will increase when godly justice is either ignored or suppressed. But in our passage, the evil days of Bana and Rahab came to a swift and abrupt end by God's anointed civil servant, David. Our society would benefit greatly by having a God-fearing man such as David ruling over us, but sadly, we do not have that. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I posed some questions about the application, and so I want to bring us to the application of these examples. I want to begin with a, a further understanding of the situation with Bana and Rahab. What is, and, and also answer the, the significance of this introduction to Mephibosheth, and then lastly, David dealing with Joab, whether he should have done something different than he did in the previous chapter. Let's begin with Bana and Rahab. These, this example teaches us that political expediency is, should never motivate us to act outside of our authority. Political expediency should never motivate us to act outside of our authority. These two men took to themselves the authority to summarily execute Ishbosheth, the king of Israel. They did so without just cause and they did so outside of their authority. What they did was presumptuous and foolhardy. I suppose in the heat of the Civil War, they may have, they may have had clouded judgment, but that is no excuse. This, by the way, this is something that we need to be careful about when we're in the middle of war. When we're in the middle of a war, we tend to think less about God's descriptions of justice and more about our own feelings about how to prosecute it. We may make decisions rashly and outside of our authority when God teaches us how we ought to respond from his scriptures. You know that there's an entire chapter in the Bible about warfare, how it ought to be fought. Did you know that? Deuteronomy chapter 20. Entire chapters devoted to, to righteous warfare. Yet, do, do our leaders ever think about that? How to honor God in prosecuting a war? I fear for my own son in that regard, who serves in the military. Yet, God teaches us to be careful even in warfare. These two men are looking out for their own skins and they make a rash judgment, and it costs them their lives. I suppose the heat of the Civil War may have clouded their judgment, but that's no excuse. Brethren, you must never assume to yourselves authority that has not been delegated to you by God. God had raised up Ishbosheth to govern Israel for a time. He was a lawful authority in Israel. And to raise up arms against that lawful authority was beyond the pale. The Bible does teach us when and how we are to act in civil disobedience against either unlawful or tyrannical authorities, but this is an example of how not to do it, 
how not to do it. You must guard against the siren calls of those who seek to overthrow evil with unlawful means. Those who seek to overthrow evil with unlawful means. It may sound good on the surface, but the end of it is death. God sees and knows the needs of his people. He sees and knows the needs of his people. In our passage, David appeals to a deliverer whose name is God, not the hands of two two men who take the the life of Ishbosheth, or an Amalekite who takes the life, presumes to, to, to kill Saul, the anointed one of God. No. David trusts in God to be his deliverer, and he accounts for that even in the passage today. We must not be motivated by expediency in hopes of pleasing God and expecting his blessings. You must always walk by faith and not by just human sight. Now before considering the example of Mephibosheth, I want to answer the last question first. The last question is, why did David execute the Amalekite in chapter 1 and now executes uh, Bena and his brother for the killing of Ishbosheth in in chapter 4, and let's go Joab in chapter 3. Let's consider that. At the beginning of, the, of this book, chapter 1, the Amalekite comes from the battlefield where, David, where Saul has died, and he hands to David evidence of Saul's death and, and, and tells David that he put to death a dying Saul. Now, commentators debate whether he lied about that or not, whether he actually did it. He was trying to, to bolster his own argument uh, in, to favor David, or if he actually did it. I tend to think that he actually did it. Saul was on, the, on his deathbed, so to speak. He'd already been mortally wounded, I think, and the Amalekite probably finished him off. And then he takes the evidence uh, from Saul to David that he's dead. But how does David judge that? How does David judge? First of all, the Amalekites are all condemned by God already. David just came, he's at Ziklag when all this happens. He had just returned to Ziklag from the Amalekite territories after doing the, the, the thing that Saul was supposed to do many years before, and that was to annihilate the Amalekites. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. David actually accomplished it. But there's one left, this fellow that came from the battlefield who saw and probably participated in Saul's death. He was already a condemned man. But he heaped more condemnation upon himself for presuming to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, Saul. And David brings that to his attention. Here... We have a righteous man, as David calls Ishbosheth, likely asserting his innocence, that he, there was nothing for which he should have been executed. And here, two men presume upon their own authority to take Ishbosheth's life and head, ultimately, to David. And David retorts with, You've committed an unlawful act and it's a capital crime, and you have testified against one another, and the evidence is in your hands, you are to be put to death. And David summarily executes him. 
But Joab is different. Joab kills Abner, but David doesn't take Joab's life in the previous chapter. Do you remember that? He curses Joab and and curses Joab's house, but he doesn't execute him for that murder. Now, there's some evidence that there may not have been enough witnesses, two or three witnesses to the act. Although Joab's brother aided and abetted him in this act, it's likely that they both were rather proud of it. We don't know. So at the trial, if there was one, it may not have been that there were sufficient witnesses to take Joab's life. Interestingly enough, it all happened in a city as well that was a city of refuge. So it may have been that they couldn't convict him of murder, but just manslaughter, and he was taking up refuge in a city of refuge in Israel. We don't know the details. The simple fact of the matter, though, is that David treats him differently, Joab, than he treats the enemies of God. Why do I bring that to your attention? Here's the reason. Sometimes the enemies that are within are just as dangerous as the enemies without. When our civil servants take an oath in this country, they they take an oath to protect the Constitution against foreign and domestic enemies. It's easy to identify the foreign ones it's very difficult to identify and deal righteously with the domestic ones. And yet, they can be a cancer in a society. And I suspect, in our society, that's the greater cancer than the foreign enemies. Enough said about that circumstance, but I do want to turn our attention, lastly, to Mephibosheth. This should be an encouraging Uh, an encouraging part of this whole passage. The example of Mephibosheth is very interesting and is important to this account. Mephibosheth, a cripple, yet in the line to the throne of Saul, comes to our attention by God's grace and mercy through the Holy Spirit. Brethren, he is a metaphor for Saul's house, and I mean his lineage. Saul was a robust giant of a man, but because of his self-centeredness, his impatience, and his lack of faithfulness, the kingdom was taken from his house. Mephibosheth appears to be the embodiment of the impotence of Saul's house. The impotence of Saul's house. Similarly, Mephibosheth is an example of the house of David, particularly David's greatest son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is the emphasis given to his feet that is the most salient. His feet have seemingly become useless. For his everyday life, he has no ability to walk. And this may seem to have been a curse from God. Yet, I see it a bit differently. Both his age and his feet have kept Mephibosheth out of the fray between David and Ishbosheth. Remember, Mephibosheth is not a threat to David. Who's going to follow this man who who's, uh, suffers from this great tragedy, this disability? And he's too young to really be a true, a true threat to David. So both his, his age and his feet 
work in his favor in this circumstance. He's not a target, but he is an example. He is a humble man. We're going to see that in chapter 9 when we get to it. And God will lift him up to the king's table in that chapter. His feet will be placed under the table of the king. Where were the feet of Benah and Rechab placed? They were placed in a place of judgment. I want to draw your attention to how this book of Samuel began. Not in chapter 1 of the second book, but in chapter 2 of the first book. Remember last week that I said that these two books in the Old Covenant are one book, and in our English translations we divided it into two books. Well, at the beginning of the first book, the first book of Samuel, chapter 2, we find Hannah, Samuel's mother, praying a prayer that God answers. And that prayer is partially answered in this chapter, chapter 4 of the second book of Samuel. I want you to listen to Hannah's prayer. I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to listen to things that relate to feet. This is the prayer. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled, those who stumbled, are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she has as many children has be- and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the grave, down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints But the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. As I said before, Hannah's prayer is being partially answered in today's text. The mighty are stumbling. And falling all around in this chapter 4. Ishbosheth's dead. Abner's dead. Two of Abner's captains are dead. They're falling everywhere. The mighty are falling. But who's being lifted up? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Why is this important? Brethren, Mephibosheth is the son of a righteous man, Jonathan. And no doubt, even in his youth, Jonathan was careful to teach Mephibosheth righteousness. 
And though he was impotent, he has been preserved. Though he was in the house of Saul, he's not lost his life. And in just a few chapters, he's going to sit at David's table. How does this speak to us about the gospel? Remember, Genesis 3.15 teaches us that the heel of Jesus would be bruised, but he would triumph over Satan, crushing the head of Satan, and then he would be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Brethren, Mephibosheth becomes an example of Jesus to us. Though seemingly weak and impotent, he will one day sit at the table of the living God as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. The feet of the wicked Bana and Rechab hang at the pool of Ebron, where the civil war began, where justice was meted out. But the lame feet of Mephibosheth, the son of a righteous Jonathan, will be seated at the table of the king. Brethren, you may think we are impotent. We are. The only power that exists in the universe that can quell the wicked is the power of the Holy Spirit, keeping and doing the decree of the living God. We are impotent. We're like Mephibosheth. But we're about to come to the table of the living God as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Does that warm your heart? What we can't do for ourselves, the Son of the living God has done for us who became humble, who took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. His feet were bruised by Satan, but in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, he brought about the death of death itself and conquered Satan and crushed his head. That's who we honor. That's whom we place our trust in. The true and living God whose strength and might excels anything we could ever hope to do. And we should delight in his strength. Let us pray together.